0: This is episode 63 of the Creative Giants Show. I'm Charlie Gilkey. Thanks so much for joining me today. While we all have different professions and creative talents, we all share one thing in common. We have and use our voices. But speaking up, whether in the context of public speaking or just speaking up for what we believe in, can be terrifying. In this episode, Alexia Vernon joins me to share how our voices can be transformational. Ready? Let's do this.
1: Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative Giants are talented Renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey.
0: I'm delighted to introduce you to Alexia Vernon. Branded and Moxie Maven by the White House Office of Public Engagement for her unique an effective approach to leadership development. Through her Step Into Your Moxie platform, Alexia has become the go-to expert for helping entrepreneurs, executives, online experts, and other thought leaders create, pitch, and perform their spotlight talks and design and execute transformational events. Alexia is also the founder and director of Influencer Academy, a women's leadership development program. Alexia not only cultivates the voices of thought leaders, She is one. She has scored FaceTime with hundreds of corporate, conference, and college audiences with her keynote speeches and interactive trainings, and she has contributed to media including CNN, NBC, The Wall Street Journal, Inc., Forbes, and Women's Health Magazine. I'm excited to have Alexia on the show sharing her voice so that you can better use your voice. Alexia, thanks so much for the great work you do and for joining me on the show today.
1: My pleasure. I'm really excited to be here
0: and for us to be able to jam. All right, you have such a rich background. I was I was doing the research before the show and I was like, oh, this is going to be exciting. Um, and so we like to start with origin stories because you know we often see people when they're at a certain level of accomplishment and acclaim and wonder like that can't be me because I'm where I am, right? But we all start from somewhere. So how would you get started with um, public and transformational speaking?
1: I'm a pretty unlikely person (laughs) to be doing the work that I know I was born to do, given that public speaking is not something that came the slightest bit naturally for me, quite the opposite. It actually terrified me for more years than I care to admit. And the first time that I can remember giving a speech, it went really horribly. (laughs) Um, Pretty much every fear that anyone I've ever worked with possesses. And they say, well, what would happen if X, Y, and Z happened, I can say, you'll survive. And I can say that with all certainty because it's something that I encountered when I was nine or 10 years old, when I was giving my first speech. So for anyone who is new to me and has no idea what I'm referring to, at that time, I had been sucking my thumb for a very long time, so I had a tremendous overbite. My teeth were pointed in different directions, and the day after I went to the orthodontist to get a bunch of metal accoutrements. so just to recap what all of this looked like for those of you who are visual like I am, that means that I had a tongue thrust corrector to try to train my tongue to stay in place. I had a jaw realigner to bring my jaw back into alignment. I had braces. And I had headgear, that ugly looking burlap sack that would sit on the top of your head that would attach to all the other devices in your mouth. So I, I get my post-apocalyptic makeover. Mm-hmm. I go to school the next day <laughs> to give a current events presentation. And when I get up to the front of the room, I take a deep breath. I try to get my words out and absolutely nothing for a good minute comes out of my mouth. I close my eyes. I take another deep breath. And this time I can start to see in the eyes of my classmates that horrible feeling of like, I'm going to burst out laughing, but I can't laugh because that would be so mean. But I feel all of that energy and it gets into my body and I just start shaking. My hands get clammy. My heart is beating so fast that even though I'm in Los Angeles, California, I'm pretty sure that down across the border in Mexico, people could hear my heart beating. Mm -hmm. I finally somehow, some way, get through that speech, but I really vow that. I am not going to ever put myself in a situation where I could feel that small or be that embarrassed or be that vulnerable again. And I pretty much made good on my word for a number of years through a variety of interlocking factors, including desire for scholarship money, as well as love of performance. I wind up entering a pageant, this junior America pageant and win. And it's, Remarkable for a number of reasons, one, not just because I get a group of money for college, but because during that competition, it was the first time I ever was able to stand on stage. And I was pretty young. I mean, I'm lucky. I was 19 at this point. But I had one of those moments where I felt like I was in utter connection with that audience. And I knew when I won that it was about being present and being focused on moving my audience to action on my platform, which was preventing sexual violence. So that started my speaking career. It took me a number of years. It was not a linear journey at all to figure out that I wanted to support other people to step into their powers, communicators, and public speakers. But that's uh, kind of the origin story and a brief glimmer into what I'm doing now.
0: So to bring everybody else in, though, like this talk when you were nine years old, eight years old? The very first one, yeah, it's Every, third or fourth grade. That's actually this one of the second really powerful ways that you used your voice, right? Um, yeah. And so you kind of mentioned um, your campaign to end sexual abuse and things like that. So, you know, you had another powerful moment when you revealed, you know, that you were sexually abused earlier, right? Yeah.
1: And it's interesting that you call it a powerful moment because I agree, it definitely was. And yet it took me far longer for far more years than you know, being 19 and winning that pageant to really see that as accessing my power. Um, I was sexually abused in my family when I was growing up, and I spoke out about it when I was four years old. And I wish that I could say that this, what I now hold finally am able to refer to as this initial act of moxie, um, set me up for a lifetime of being confident and competent in my skin. The truth is, is that. While there were people in my family who believed me and who made me feel loved and supported and seen and protected, there were other people since this was happening in my family who had a very different reaction, who weren't ready for what I shared, who felt like listening to me and protecting me meant that they would have to turn their backs on other the other family member who I was making these claims against. And so what it triggered in me was the realization, A, that when I spoke, people listened, but B, that when I spoke, people listened, meaning that there was a lot of power attached to that. And I wasn't necessarily sure I wanted to have that kind of power because I saw what happened to my family. Um, Although this was not my father, it was somebody on his side of the family. My parents ultimately got divorced. It was ugly. It was hard. And in many ways, it's been a theme in my life that I've often said things before people were ready to hear them. And there were people who... had very antagonistic reactions to what I said. And and I think that is sort of the responsibility for anybody who is, identifying as a creative, as a change maker, is knowing that you have a responsibility to say what needs to be said. And it doesn't mean that you're going to speak with um, anger. It means that everything that comes out of you is going to be full of compassion. But at the same time, you may not always receive that compassion back. And that is not licensed to play safe and small.
0: Yeah, that's a powerful message. Because when you dive through several layers of the fear of speaking, especially being in other people with a message, there's the fear of ostracism Mm -hmm. that once you say whatever you're going to say, like you're going to be out of the club. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is, you know, if you looked at gender dynamics, I think women tend to have that based upon the research, more of the ostracism, whereas men tend to have the fear of being powerless or not, not having the skills that you need to, it kind of splits. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So you you probably know my background
1: academically is women's studies. And I taught both women's studies and public speaking at the university level for a while. And it's fascinating because most people have some fear of public speaking. Mm -hmm. And if you look at women, typically the fear that I often hear is, people will completely shun me. I mean, it's not like they will disagree. It's like they will have a very strong negative response to me. And for men, it's usually, well, if I miss this, I won't get an opportunity. It's so different in terms of the stakes. It's like losing out on something versus not feeling worthy anymore. So I've loved that you've pointed that out. Thank you.
0: So since you have the the research background, um, you know, what are the causes, if you could, or like, why is that so embedded, say, in females or in women, mm-hmm. that that is what's going to happen as opposed to the men, which tends to be around confidence and competence, right? Right.
1: It's so much deeper than just public speaking. I believe it's a combo of wiring, but also socialization, that whenever you look at, quote, failure and I'm not suggesting every time you speak, <laughs> failure's um, going to happen, not by any stretch of the imagination, but the perception that this could happen is you know, omnipresent for women and for men. Uh, but, but for women across the board, irrespective of what the issue is, that fear is always, I will come undone, who will I be? My t- identity is wrapped up in other people's perceptions of me. No matter how self-evolved you are, Even if you know that that is the case and you're working on it, the feeling is still there Um, versus for dudes, (laughs) you know, and there's a couple guys who who I've coached who have a more feminine response, but by and large, it is simply that I will have to figure out what do I do next? It's like a, how do I, how do I bulldoze forward rather than how do I pick myself back up off the ground?
0: Yeah, I have a theory. And, um, this is what happens when you have a social psychologist with, you know, my wife in the house, um, Angela, who's got a PhD in sociology and a social philosophers, you know, I, I, we have a lot of talks about this. I think one of it is, especially in our Western culture, men are socialized to face rejection to a degree that women are not. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, when you look at the dating rituals, when you look at, you know, job hunting, you look at, I think men are much more hardwired to face rejection and it's a part of life. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas I think given general sociological patterns, women are much more being asked. And so there's just a different degree of the way in which we build a rejection tolerance in men that I don't think we, we practice that so much when we, when we socialize girls into women.
1: Agreed. 100%. One of the programs that I have is specifically rooted in leadership. And the basic premise of this particular program is that women who are involved in this 10 month experience actually get up on their feet and they practice the leadership competencies and they fail and they fail and they get coaching and they pivot and they try again and they get more coaching. And whenever I'm trying to make the case for organizations in terms of why should they sponsor women to participate, I almost never have to get very far and explain Because there's this awareness, I think, for most people in the United States, and I would say probably I would throw in Canada and Western culture in general, that um, women feel like they have to rehearse and refine their performance before they'll take that risk. And knowing that I'm not in the business of trying to change that. I mean, you know, if I were a neuroscientist, maybe I would, I would, but for me, it's okay. If that's where we're coming from, then how do we give more meaningful rehearsal opportunities so that when the stakes are there women and of course men, but I Mm -hmm. think it's more impactful for women feel like they're set up to be able to go in and thrive because they've already acquired their hours and failed when it was safe to do so.
0: Yeah. It's one of those things to where, um, This is, I think, the third conversation I've had on this in a while. It's the safe place to fail. Um, And I I came across this because a couple of years ago, I started taking uh, musical lessons for my guitar. So I've been a, you know, sort of background singer, songwriter. um, It's kind of tooling around on the guitar. And I finally decided to take lessons because I was self-taught. And what was so amazing about that experience is it was a safe place to fail and not be good at something because... Um, so much of the rest of my life is on stage in so many different ways. It's podcast podcasts on stage, right? Um, every time you write, every time you give a speech, every time you give a class, you're in a coach, like so much, um, this, there's always a stake to losing. But there's like, there's this place where like, my job was basically to go in there and try things and not be good, right? Um, and it was really revolutionary for me as on the male side of things. It was like, I need more of that. How am I going to engineer more safe places to fail? Um, yeah
1: that's so good yeah it's so good because we don't typically stick with things we're not good at Uh, i know that's probably my greatest learning in this lifetime, or at least the chapter I'm currently in, I'm in my 30s, has been, how do I get comfortable being uncomfortable? And another word for uncomfortable might mean not being good. Um, There's a reason why I stuck with ballet and I stuck with theater. You know, I had a few things that I put myself 100% into because I was good and I was getting that feedback. And it breaks my heart that I wouldn't stick with bowling because, you know, I, I was a miserable bowler, but I loved it. I loved it, but somewhere I picked up, if you know, you're know you not shooting, and I won't even tell you what my scores are, but like if you're not good, you shouldn't be doing this thing. And as a mom of a two-year-old, that is one of the things that I'm so passionate about is letting her do things that she has absolutely no affinity for and just praising the fact she's having fun because we don't need to be rock stars in everything.
0: We don't need to be rock stars in everything. And when you look at it from a broad lens, um, you know, we've been talking about second acts for a long time, right? We're all going to have sort of a second act, but I think given lifespans and given changing tech, the changing pace of technology, um, we're going to have third acts as well. Mm-hmm. Right. There are going to be things that we need to know how to do 25 years from now. Yeah. You know, even though we're in our thirties that we can't possibly know how to do right now. And as an adult acquisition, like it's different than when you're kids, because you do so much learning by play. And there's not the performance attached to it, right? Um, but if you even if we were to go back 20 years and say, you know, we're gonna have to learn how to blog and podcast and and do these things, we're like what what are those things? Those don't exist as mediums for most people.
1: And so often those things we think we'll never need, it's that exact skill set <laughs> that we're gonna need later. Uh, if only hindsight weren't 2020. I can remember being sophomore or junior in high school, and there was a computer programming class. And I went to a really small all girls high school. And so while this is not novel these days, it really was back then because my whole grade had 25 people. So to have a a specific elective was pretty cool. And for some reason, I signed up with it uh, for it with my two best friends and pretty quickly decided, nah, this isn't for me, but I was in, there was nothing I could do. And my best friend and I decided that we were going to do homework for our other friend who seemed to have an affinity for computers so that we would do her homework in other classes and then she would do our homework in this class. So we learned nothing. Thing about programming. And now I know the thing that has prevented me from taking risks more than anything is my need always to have a developer on hand. The friend, my other friend, the one who was trying to also get our other friend to do her homework, she now is a top leader for Pandora and obviously is, you know, been immersed in startup culture. Like you just, you never know. But oftentimes that thing you have the most resistance about learning and doing, sometimes it can be our body's way I've found of signaling delegate. It's not for you, but other times it's, it's uncomfortable. So even if you don't master it, lean into that fear, because there's something there for you.
0: Absolutely. One of the, I'm happy I did it, but when I started this whole blogging website thing, one of the first things that I did, I started teaching myself Ruby on Rails. So smart. Um, I will never, I don't think, actually code anything. Like I've decided that, but I could speak to developers. I could, like, I know what's going on. I know the MVC architecture. I know object-oriented language. I know enough about Ruby and Rails and just development in general that I'm, I'm useful enough to be dangerous, but not, or I'm good enough to be dangerous, but not really good enough to be that useful, but that's such a good skill just to be able to think like a programmer, even if you can't program, you know? Yes,
1: yes, yes, yes.
0: And so just, just a quick action point for, for anyone listening, like what are those, those things that are on the border of your current set of knowledge that you think learning a little bit would go a long way? And just um, is a book to help that. Um, Josh Kaufman wrote a book called The First 20 Hours, mm-hmm. which is a great book that talks about um, rapid skill acquisition. And the basic, ter- the basic premise is that The First 20 Hours is structured – um, set of a structured learning experience in the first 20 hours can get you a large degree of competence in a lot of different areas. So the first 20 hours, Josh Kaufman, highly recommended. Um, so let's, let's pull it back in a little bit. I know we, we, I always try to say we went off the rails, but there, there are no rails. That's the fun thing about it. Um, so you, um, get junior Miss America, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, you go and you get a BA and what was your um, women studies? Women's studies, Thank you. Um, what then?: So
1: I wound up while in college starting a nonprofit girls empowerment organization in Las Vegas, which is where I did my undergrad and was able to finance the organization in terms of keeping it running, but was not able to draw a salary and really had no concept of how I would ever do that. I was very, very lucky. And then I won after the Miss Junior America competition, a top ranked business competition for young people. I had a lot of media attention in my local community. So I was able to access funding, but I just didn't understand how do you build a business and scale something whatever reason, I'd always been really resistant to business, like I would do little side hustle businessy things. And even though my dad ran large companies, I always felt like, despite coming out of my whole background, that like, business was more inherently masculine, I wanted to be a change maker and change the world. And so I went to grad school at NYU and did an interdisciplinary master's degree that fused gender studies, leadership development, theater for social change wound up coming out of that experience, working for an educational theater company that had previously been at New York University, moved to the City University of New York and leading professional development programming. And that is really where I got good at being a facilitator and creating transformation for others. I had the most phenomenal mentors. I was given extraordinary opportunities to um, develop, but I hated being broke. I mean, I, I hate to, to be that simple about it, but I hated being broke. No matter how much adjunct professor stuff I did, um, no matter how many uh, theater parts that I was able to secure, I always was going to owe more in student loan money than I made in the course of the year. And that weighed heavy on me because I felt like I'd had all of this educational privilege and I didn't owe it to my family who'd sacrificed a lot for that for me Um to not be able to pay my own way. And so that coupled with the love of the coaching piece I was doing. But as I moved more and more into leadership roles, becoming more and more divorced from that hands-on transformational stuff, got certified as a coach up to the, the adjunct uh, college teaching I was doing while I experimented and built my own business, which at first was not public speaking coaching. I was doing a lot of coaching around creatives and nonprofit leaders, because that's the world I was in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it took a few aha's for me to realize my zone of genius is in the public speaking. I've been getting speaking gigs for a long time. When I'm talking about other subjects, it feels like I'm somewhat circling around the perimeter of my purpose rather than being smack dab in the center. So I'm thrilled that although I've been teaching public speaking in different ways for over eight years that for the last four, that's been what I've been very clear needs to be the primary work.
0: Great. I want to pause here real quick because you said you you hated mentioning you hated mentioning that you or excuse me you didn't want to mention that you hated being broke, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm I'm going to pull that out because actually I want to celebrate that you said that because I think we should all hate being broke, right? I, I think it's one of those things where we have, and this is especially in the social change world or in the compassionate like I want to do good in the world thing, we have this sort of writer that financial success is somehow um, contradictory to or not in alignment with doing good in the world. Yeah. And And had I not
1: become a speaker who was speaking in a lot of social enterprise conferences, I may not have ever really learned that. But I was the person who would come in and be like the rah-rah person. And then I would listen to all these speakers who came from business backgrounds, who were doing innovative global change-making stuff, realizing I have got it wrong or incomplete that you can do good and you can do well. And more importantly, the smarter you are, the more education you've had, the more of an imperative you have to make sure that you're not just building a movement with 30 people, but that you're really scaling your impact and that what you're doing is sustainable.
0: Yeah, vehicles for social change need fuel. Money is fuel, right? What you do with the money once you have it is up to you. You can give it away, you can start three nonprofits, whatever, right? But, it, it's, a, it's a sad fact that the businesses that win usually win because they have more money, right? Um, they have more time to figure out what doesn't work than businesses who don't. And so I just want to really play that up, that, it, that if you're really struggling with that, I, I call it the, the money versus virtue thing, like whether it's the starving artist myth, whether it's whatever myth that we have around doing good in the world. Anytime we start introducing money, it gets weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and you got to really debug that one really, really debug that one. So I wanted to pull that up. But how or where did you unlearn this whole, um, I'm not good at business, like business is contradictory to what I'm doing? or, Or how did that manifest for you?
1: That's a great question, and as you were asking it, I started to realize I'm not hundred percent sure where that realization came from probably in my coach training, there was a lot of identifying limiting beliefs. maybe my friendship with your previous guest Jacquette Timmins truly played a really powerful role so for those who've heard that episode, I can't remember what number it is if you haven't go back because chocque is fabulous, but I really sought her out. I'd recently moved from New York to Las Vegas, and we were both involved for a period of time with the Woodhall Institute. So I kept for a long time teaching female empowerment, uh, female uh, financial empowerment workshops, and I was doing starting to do some public speaking stuff. So when her book came out, I went to her book launch, and just was really clear, like, this is someone who I want to be one of my best business buddies because she's solid, she's smart, she's fun, and she gets it. And a lot through osmosis, I would say, started there. Mm-hmm. Um, coupled with recognizing that the way I had been doing speaking was moderately profitable. And after losing a huge, potentially six-figure um, speaking contract and being clear that with just a few thousand dollars in the bank, I didn't feel much better off than I had been back when I was working in the nonprofit world, that things needed to fundamentally change so that I wasn't always relying on one stream of revenue. So in my own journey to create multiple streams of revenue, primarily through speaking in business, I mean, I'd love to say that I have crazy investments. I've built multiple companies, but I'm not there yet. But just making sure that I'm not hooked into a model that is just transactional with a team of clients, but rather building online programs, multiple different online programs and so forth. Um, In that journey, became really passionate about working with speakers to not repeat the mistakes I made where they were just looking to book keynotes or they thought, hey, if I just get on this TEDx stage, then um, I'll be discovered and everything will be rainbows and cupcakes after. But looking at what are the different ways to make meaning and to make money from speaking.
0: Yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned it because um, whether we're talking about authors, whether we're talking about musicians, whether we're talking about leaders, whoever they are, developers, there's this idea that like once you get that first spotlight Mm -hmm. that everything is gonna be gravy. Like once you get found, everything is gonna be gravy. Um, you've worked with, let's, let's focus it on speakers. Well, I'll say it this way. It, that's not the way it works. You get found and you wake up the next day and you got the same problems and more than you had the day before. Yes. And
1: I would say that there are maybe 1%. This is, I can't qualify this, but about 1% of people where they have a single big break and it changes everything. That is not the majority. However, it's what do you do after the little breaks to leverage what's happened in the past and build momentum for the future?
0: Yeah, so I'm glad you know. I'm glad we're here because um, I see a lot of similarities across the creative knowledge working industries about your breakaway moments, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of grind before the breakaway, you know, mm-hmm. when it comes to it. So let's talk about like that, if you can, um, briefly. Let's talk about from unknown to sort of known to known to well known, and just the different parts of that journey that that um, potential speakers. Or people who are on the road might be facing.
1: Yeah. So you can feel free to stop me at any point and we'll go deeper. But one of the things I want to recommend to folks early on is to get clear on your viewpoints and start speaking from there and not trying to quote satisfy an audience because the longer you are trying to develop material craft your story and speed to what you think people want to hear from you the more likely it is that you'll always be speaking to a small audience and i speak from my own experience that it is not that difficult to quote be liked on stage you can figure that out pretty quickly But liked is pretty boring. Liked is pretty forgettable. And liked is rarely impactful. Mm -hmm. And so I know that it's the moments where I said something because I believed it with all of my being that somebody heard. And usually it was somebody that I didn't expect to hear. And that, that is what often led to the next thing, whether it was a blog that had 20 readers, but one of them in the early days happened to write for the Wall Street Journal and started using me as a source to one of my clients who read one of my posts and said, I think that this would make for a great pitch for a great news station. You know, There's that fine line between staying in your lane and doing the work like that I support and going out and trying to position yourself. But at the end of the day, opportunities are only going to come because people resonate with your voice. So first get clear on your voice. I hope that that's helpful in terms of that introductory stage. And and probably the second most important thing is to make sure that you are building up your network and not in sort of that gross manipulative way, but that you're reaching out from a place of true desire to connect with people who are speaking that you love watching maybe you've been to their live events whose blog posts you read like let them know and forget about hoping they'll answer that's not the goal but the goal is just to be in that good energy letting people know um, that you're following them and you like them and also keeping an eye towards who are potential mentors who are potential connectors because Most of my speaking opportunities over the last five years have not come from me pitching someone. The majority of them have come from somebody who heard about me, from somebody that I know who's two, three, four steps ahead of where I am who said, hey, you should check out Alexia. And I find that in the creative world, that is how so many opportunities
0: unfold. Yeah. 90% of my speaking comes from someone who saw me speak somewhere else and recommended that like, hey, you got to have Charlie in there. Right. I'm like, okay, right. Um, let's, let's do this, but I'm going to voice because you know, there, there was at least one listener, (laughs) at least one listener who thought, but what if the thing that I care about, nobody else cares about? Like, what if it's not popular or they're not a lot of people? Like, it's just really nerdy. You know, I want to talk about the lineage of Ewoks on Tatooine and that's Mm -hmm. what I'm really passionate about.
1: That sometimes if that's what you're really passionate about then you should do it because you need to keep your passion Lit up, but that may not be the thing that ultimately you monetize and that's okay, too I remember the first time so now we're going back into a little bit of the dark space, but I think it's go. Oh, I love it um, In my own healing one of the things that I did was volunteer for a period of time to work with sex offenders I needed to understand what happens to primarily men, but there were some women as well, who committed acts against children um, and against adults. And that completely developed my muscle of forgiveness, but also my muscle of understanding that hate does not just show up. Hate has antecedents long before that hate manifests. and. Um, When there were some stories that started to come out that was always demonizing people who committed acts, I started sometimes to my list, other times on on blog posts, and a couple of times in speeches saying, by no means am I condoning um, acts of violence, whether it's sexual violence, physical violence, emotional violence. But when we use hateful rhetoric and we demonize, we're not just hurting, quote, the perpetrator, we're also hurting, in many cases, young men who've been victimized who will never speak up. And as a result, we'll, turn, we'll have pathways that flow well, much like many of the men I was seeing who were in the criminal justice system, who'd been abused, and who were just recommitting that violence because they'd never spoken up. And I was sure that this might end my career. I mean, <laughs> I'd spoken a lot about the rights of those who had overcome sexual abuse, and now here I am saying, wait a minute, hold up, don't throw away the key on sex offenders. And to be sure, there were some people who wrote very nasty responses to me, but there were also some people who came out of the woodwork who said, thank you, either because my son um, you know, committed an act and I feel alone because no woman could ever understand why I didn't turn my back on him, or I got emails from men who said this thing happened in my past and I'm so ashamed and I don't know how to move through. So well, the thing you talk about, um, if it's keeping you up at night, there's a reason, pursue it. And just be intentional about how you talk about that, whether it's on stage or in writing or a combination of the two, so that you take care of your heart, but you don't so protect your heart that you're not allowing yourself to be of service.
0: That's that's beautiful, that's beautiful. And thanks for sharing that too. Um, You know, it kind of goes back to the Gandhi, you know, an eye for an eye leads the world blind in a lot of ways, right? We live in a different world right now because with podcasting and YouTube and Vine and Instagram and social media, um, you know, there are billions of microphones, right? Um, And what happens is when there are billions of microphones, there are billions of people who are going to play it safe Mm -hmm. and talk about the conventional, talk about the things they half care about and hide themselves. And who's going to stand out are those people who have a message, even if it is whatever it is, yeah. that actually reach through the mic, the screen, the stage and grip you, you know? Mm-hmm. And you got to stick with that, right? In a lot of ways, because if you don't have that, you're just going to be, uh, I hate to say the word commodity, right? Because it, it's overused, but you know what I'm saying? Like, there won't be anything that stands out about you on, on any of those mics,
1: I do and what's more important than having thousands millions of fans is having the people who need you know that you are there for them and it's hard to be a messenger if you don't have a very clear message or the message is one that has been shared already by a lot of people that's another thing I get a lot everybody's talking these days about vulnerability or everybody's talking about juice or everybody's talking about whatever it is that's somebody's platform and it's important, I mean, I'm not somebody who says yes, but no one's done it your way. That's a piece of it. But it's also important to take a step back and say, why are you uniquely poised to speak about this? Because if you're doing it because it's just comfortable or because other people told you you have expert status or competency in that area, and that's why, that's not enough of a good reason. But if it's because your, your life has led you to that place or because um, you went to school, or you had a particular uh, business or apprenticeship experience, you know, that's the stuff that's really interesting is not just because no one else has done it your way, but because you do have a lens into that, that lights that story, lights that topic up differently.
0: Yeah, yeah, and what it is, what often happens, and, and Pam Slim brought this up in her, in her great book, The Body of Work, right? Um, and I happen to know that Pam is episode number one just because she was the first, right? So listen to episode one, but it's those background stories that you weave together, right? And sometimes what happens is we show up um, with pieces of our background, um, the safe pieces or the marketable pieces or the things pieces that we care about, Right. And it's those other pieces, those background pieces, kind of like, you know, if you're playing music and you have different notes that you that you add to them and create different harmonies, it's those that harmonize and make you sound special, right? Um, so I had, what you're saying just makes me think of one of the TEDx speakers that I've
1: worked with, and I'm going to give a shout out because she's sensational. Her name is Toshia Shaw. Her TEDx talk is called The Pact. And... And now it's tricky because I want people to watch the talk and enjoy the experience. But suffice to say that she was the, well, she still is the founder, but she was the executive director of a nonprofit that did some important work in the world. And I'll just leave it at that. And never once in all of those years that she was securing funding, that she was the figurehead for that organization, ever shared her origin story. Um, it completely revolutionized, revolutionized her as a thought leader, her a brand and gave a new, um, what am I trying to say? New sources of funding came into the organization once she made that connection. And for so many of us, we're doing things, but we're never really sharing our why. And people care about why we're doing what we're doing, which is one of the reasons why I love that you start there because it helps us understand why this person specifically
0: you know why this person why why this because you know um i think i was thinking about this and i'll be brief we are exposed to so many different marketing manage- marketing manipulations and sales pitches and messages all over the place so sometimes it like we just get blind to them until we hear that clear why cuz well not that we become blind we become either either blind, we don't see them, or we become sort of distrustful, what's behind this, like, I need some sort of anchor, and when you get that clear why, it just attracts you to the message, you know? So true. Alrighty, so, how, you you mentioned messages, Mm -hmm. like, when, you know, those messages that you're going, but how do you get that one, how do you find that one idea that, that, you know, by creative accretion, or however, like, that's the thing? That you're going to stick with. Yeah.
1: It's always so tricky whenever I get asked that question in this kind of format because wouldn't you know I do have a process that you know is a little bit involved. Because if it were simple, everyone could just birth their TED style talk in five minutes. They'd have their idea worth spreading, they'd articulate it, they would be golden. But I can, of course, share a few things to get people started in that process. Some that I'll mention I've already shared and a few new prompts. I love that you asked how do people find their message, because it's easy to think our story comes first, but truthfully, on stage, I have found when you are clear on the idea you want to spread, that becomes the anchor, and then you can curate the right stories, the right research, the right evidence, the right examples, the right slides around that. Um, one of the hats that I've worn for four years has been curating a TEDx Women event here in Las Vegas. So that's something I'm incredibly passionate about is prioritizing idea first. Story serves that idea. But how do you get to that idea? I, I often will begin with folks by asking them, when you think about the legacy that you want to leave behind, and don't humble brag and say you just want to be a good person. It's not like just get into that space. You are leaving a legacy and you get to create it. What do you want to leave behind? It often will help folks to say, I wanna leave behind um, a new generation of socially conscious leaders. I want to leave behind a community that is no longer racked with gun violence or whatever it is. It will probably be a little vague and big, but that gives you the entry point. And then from that entry point to be able to say, What did you do specifically to heal, to solve, to make better? I mean, you kind of have to futz to put in the right word or phrase that makes sense. But what was your role specifically in that? Oftentimes, even if your work is not 100% aligned with that at the moment, it will illuminate this is what I'm pursuing. This is what I want to argue on behalf of. And whether you're an entrepreneur who, you know, you're using speaking to get clients, let's just be transactional and honest about it, or you're looking to be a transformational speaker and you're on big stages where you're getting paid a speaker's fee or somewhere in between those two poles, you will be more successful when that idea is front and center. Um, And that is one of the ways in then in terms of looking at, well, what stories do I share? Sometimes it's people's origin stories, but sometimes it isn't, but ask, what are the stories people need to hear in order to become wild and crazy fans of this idea and want to spread it to others. And that will help you see, Oh yeah, they need to hear this story or that's a good story, but it's theatrical. It's not necessarily going to forward my idea. I don't
0: need it. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, What do you do when your messages start changing though? Mm. Uh, You you have one idea. It's great. You develop a new body of work. You discover this new thing. How do you make that switch in a way that's coherent? You're the second person who has asked me this today. I was just talking to a friend before we recorded who said, you have a book
1: about how companies can onboard millennials into the workplace. What's that about? (laughs) And what it's about is that's who I was at that particular time. That's Uh, what my speaking was about. And I don't apologize or say that it wasn't good work. It it is, it was. However, what I wanted to be talking about evolved. So in a perfect world, you would be looking at or asking yourself, is this the message that I'm going to want to carry for the next five to 10 years? Because I won't lie. It's definitely easier when it is. But if you recognize, eh, new message, new time, then you just start telling that new story that new message and you don't try to cover up what happened in the past you just move on you make sure that there's alignment between that new message and the products and services you're offering because of course if i was trying to promote a book on millennials while i'm talking about socially conscious public speaking people are going to go "Huh." Um, so there needs to be that alignment with what people see on your blog and your writing on social. Um, but I think we often get in our own way and we get far more complicated than it needs to be because very few people have lived a linear path.
0: Yeah, yeah, very few people. And I was reading, um, from Alan Weiss, um, anyways, I won't go there, but he, he made a point in one of his books that you should expect some type of significant brand change about every five years. Mm-hmm right? Um, just given your development, it, like if you're reading and, and out there and talking, you're going to have a new element that gets added in. And so there's always going to be some some additional brand work. And, you know, I asked that one kind of selfishly because I can share it now. Um, in 2012, my wife and I were in a car accident. And, um, you know, we were in and out of hospital, you know, not a hospital, but we were inside a, you know, acupuncture and massage therapy and things like that, but my lawyer advised us not to talk about it right mm. on, on social media and on the blog because it could be used against us right anything that we said about it so we just settled in August of this year right and so there's a three year body there's a three year amount of time where a lot of sort of my thinking around business and productivity and personal development were seen from that lens of recovery and healing and limitation more so than useful abundance. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's like three years, like, shit, how do you tell that's Like, how do you just jump? Right. Um, but that's just part of it. You just jump and start talking. Here's what it was. Here's what happened. Here's where we are now. Let's go forward. You know?
1: Yeah. And I think you illustrated that beautifully. You do what makes sense based on your circumstances. And I heard Brene Brown, I want to say it was in conversation with Elizabeth Gilbert on one of their podcasts when their most recent books were coming out where she said, she said before, not everyone has earned the right to hear your story, but she says something else in this podcast, which I'm going to butcher, but it was along the lines of not ever, everyone not just because you have a great story doesn't mean you need to tell it on stage because sometimes that great story is meant to be shared with your loved ones or meant to be shared with a bunch of adolescents in a program. And it takes a certain level of discernment to know, is this a story I want to be known for and want to put out in a public way? And sometimes I've made the wrong choice and said a story is, and sometimes I made the wrong choice and said a story isn't, and you recover. Mm -hmm. But I'm learning now, the longer I've been speaking and working with others, that there's some great stories I have, but for whatever reason, it just doesn't make sense to share. And oftentimes it's because there's too many other people implicated in the story, and I don't want to disrupt their narratives. So it it feels self-serving if I do it. But in other cases, it's that I'm not ready. Um there's other times where I'll talk about stuff right when I'm going through it. So I'm very open about the fact that I struggled with postpartum depression because there's nothing like being in the midst of leading live programs and having a depressive experience at the time when everyone thinks you should be at your happiest. That for me, not saying this is right for everyone, but for me, I felt totally out of alignment just at the thought of pretending that it wasn't going on. But for other people talking about something as it's unfolding, whether because from a legal standpoint, it's wildly inappropriate to do so, or just because it doesn't feel right. Like that would be a horrible idea.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm gonna have Angela listen t- listen to that because we were talking about something recently. Mm-hmm. And just I'm gonna say it again. Not every story that you have needs to be told in a public venue or all your sure. public venues. You can pick and choose where you tell your stories. Um, whether it serves you, whether it serves the audience, whether it serves the message. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so pick and choose, but um, not everything has to be on stage.
1: Yeah, and what you do? Let's say if you're going in front of funders, what storytelling you do there. Can And probably should look very different than the story that you're going to tell if you are at a big industry event on stage. Different audiences are going to learn and take action. And that's the key. Anytime you talk to an audience wanting to move them to action, they're going to take action from different things. So making sure you get enough about who you're speaking in front of to sculpt accordingly.
0: Yeah. Oh, and I want to add here that doesn't make you disingenuous. That doesn't put you Mm -hmm. out of integrity. It's not that you're, you know, picking and choosing. Well, you are picking and choosing, but you're. Yeah, curation is a part of good speaking, always. It's always a part of that. So, speaking of curation and where messages are today, what's your big message today?
1: My big message today, particularly knowing that we're filming this at the end of 2015, it'll come out in early 2016, is that if you know that, you are a bit of a best kept secret in your work, in your world. I believe, because I've seen it in my own life and career and with countless others, that public speaking is not only one of the most effective ways to grow your audience, whatever grow means, whether it's fans, whether it's customers, whether it's funders, whatever, but it it is so effective because people connect with you when they are in the room looking into your eyes in a way that they just can't no matter how gifted a writer you are. And if that is a priority, then make it one. <laughs> and what i mean is, it's not tricky to get on stage whether it's just refining your message at a rotary club, at a at a local conference where you don't have to pay travel costs, you're not getting a fee, you're just showing up and leading a breakout session, do it, flex that muscle, and then start to carve out the time and the space and potentially make an investment to figure out how do you scale that
0: and bring it to more people. That's fantastic. So as far as things that you're facing right now, because, you know, you've a long history of being brave and being vulnerable and being outspoken and being on stage. Um, So what's the most unanticipated challenge that you're currently facing right now?
1: That's a great question. Um, A couple of things. So one, and I always hate calling it a challenge because it's the greatest joy, but having a daughter who's under two years old, working from home, uh, it was really tough for me to accept that I needed to bring childcare into our home because being a mom was something I wanted to give a hundred percent to, and I wanted to give a hundred percent to growing and scaling my business so in terms of a challenge, knowing that there's a lot of projects i 'm so gung ho to launch and giving myself permission to just slow down a little bit because in the two years since she was born, i've birthed three programs that were big, cumbersome programs um, and I got really wiped out. I mean I had some serious crashes. Because, not that I was quote, doing too much, but I just wasn't protecting my energy enough. So for me, it's how do I maintain my ambition and the agility, if you will, um, to be able to dance between all of the different hats and, and roles that I possess.
0: That's a great one. You've got 100% to give, but not 100% to give to each and everything. <laughs> right.
1: And sometimes it's okay to, I'm multi-passionate, so I like to do a lot of things at the same time, but it's okay sometimes to say, like, for example, in 2016, I won't relaunch one of my programs that got phenomenal reviews that people loved because I would rather grow a few other core ones and leave that baby here and come back to it rather than do too much and and do it mediocre.
0: Yeah, there's this point of time when you realize, or there's a point where you realize that time is actually on your side. And it's a weird thing as an entrepreneur, when you get that point, it's like, actually, I can sit and work on these other things. And that 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 program will gain value
1: mm-hmm.
0: by, by being there. And I don't have to always launch it and have it open. That's, that's fantastic, Alexia.
1: Thank you. I'm hoping that I feel that way in a few months. <laughs> no, I will. I know that I will. Because the minute my coach suggested that, It was like, my breath just got so much deeper because I thought of, Oh, you mean, I don't have to fill that time with something else that could just be time to be a little bit that felt glorious. And we do, we have to have to have time for being present and mindful and not being scheduled.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of people, when I do business coaching, like will come to me about all the things they want to add to their plate like, here's everything. And I'm like, well, first let's talk about everything we need to remove from the plate. Let's talk about everything we need to remove from the business. Right. So we make room for the things that really should be there. It's natural part of it. Right. All right. So if people remember nothing else about you and your body of work from this episode, what would you want it to be?
1: I would want it to be that if you know you have an important message that needs to be shared, even if you're not 100% sure how to sculpt it, that you have a responsibility to figure out how to get on stage and share it
0: because your audiences need to hear it from you. That's fantastic. Alexia, thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, Creative Giants, so you heard it from Alexia. What's your message? What do you really feel passionate and just lit up to talk about? Remember, it's your responsibility to share that message. It's not other people's responsibility to find you. So for 2016, as you're thinking about what you want to put on your plate for goals and intentions, how about, you know, share your message. Until next time.